We pray once again. God in heaven, as we open your word, may we hear your voice speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. On our journey, uh, we continue around the side of the lake. Jesus has been right above Tabga, where he's preached the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. And after he's done preaching, he is exhausted. I, I honestly think that Jesus might be an introvert. That after he's with a bunch of people, he just needs some time away. And you introverts, you know exactly what I'm saying. I am one of them as well. You just have to get some time alone. And so Jesus and his disciples, they get into a boat and they go across the lake to the eastern side, on the, on the eastern side, the right-hand side of your picture, where he can have some rest. Now, it's an overnight trip as they're going along. Maybe they set off as the sun was going down and as they're cruising across the lake, as so often happens, the storm begins to whip up. There's wind, there's white caps, and this little boat is being tossed around like a rag doll. And as the disciples start to fear for their lives, they look at Jesus who's calmly sleeping and they say, Lord, save us, we're gonna drown. And Jesus with the voice of the creator that the wind and the waves know, he stands up with the authority that he has and he speaks to them and he says, peace, be still. And the wind dies down and the waves die down and that boat, instead of rocking, it glides across the sea just like it's glass. On our journey around uh, the Sea of Galilee uh, several years ago, Jennifer and I, we were in the bus and we went up around Capernaum, down on the right hand, the eastern side, down to that place called En Gev and it's a kibbutz. It's a fun word to say. Would you like to say it with me? Oh, it's weak. Let's try it together. Are you ready? Kibbutz. It's fun. A kibbutz is a, it's like a, a base, it's a little city that's a family-run business, basically. Everybody works for the same cause and the same purpose, and we stopped there for lunch. Now, there's two options on the menu at this little kibbutz, at least when we were there. One was spaghetti, and the other was St. Peter's fish, which is tilapia. Now, I grew up vegetarian, so, and I love carbs, so I got spaghetti. My wife thought she'd be adventurous, and she tried St. Peter's fish tilapia. Now, there was two options. You can have the fish with the head or without the head. She chose it without the head, but it, it did come to her with the, the face still looking at her. So this is her plate there, St. Peter's fish tilapia. Now, this kibbutz is probably less than a mile from where our story takes place. A mile is short. I mean, you can walk a mile from church. This where this fish is from is just where our story comes from. And if you've got your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them to Mark chapter 5. Mark's in the New Testament. It's a second gospel, Matthew and then Mark. If you are, didn't bring your Bible, or if you've never used a Bible, maybe this is your first time ever in a church, there's a blue book in front of you, and you can follow along on page 710 where we get our story today. Mark chapter 5. I'm going to read several verses here, a familiar story that you've heard many times, but one that I think is pretty powerful. Mark chapter 5, I hear the pages turning in your Bible, I'll give you another second to get there, and then we'll go. If you found Mark chapter 5, say amen. amen. Okay, that's confident, let's do it. All right, Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 1, here's what it says. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerizines, it's also known as the Gadarenes, when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. The man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. 
For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. And we pause there for a minute to think about this story, because I've read this story in several different places. In fact, Matthew and Luke also record this. And the guy that's writing this is probably John Mark, and he's writing from um, the, the, the story that Peter tells. Story, uh, Peter saw it, it's, it's his own story, but John Mark writes it down. So there might be some lost in translation stuff. Matthew records this story, and Matthew says there were two demon-possessed men. Uh, over here, Mark says there's only one, and I don't know how to justify that other than to say, I wonder if there were two, yet one of them was so much worse than the other that it felt like there was only one focus in the story. Regardless, the story is still incredible. And let's talk about demon possession for a minute. I believe there's demon possession, even nowadays. In fact, I think we, I wonder if we see it in different ways, whether it's mental disorders or some sort of mind confusion. But it's very rare that we see a case as extreme as this story. I mean, first of all, these guys are living in a cemetery. I mean, people don't like to go to cemeteries nowadays anyway, like maybe to put some flowers by your loved one's grave, but it's kind of weird walking around in there for some people. And yet these guys, they live in the tombs. They live in a cemetery. That, that rocky landscape over there in Israel, most of it is limestone. It's a really soft material. And when it rains, caves are formed from the water as it erodes away. Uh, in those days, when they would need to bury someone, they could go and dig a tomb. They'd cut away at the limestone and have a tomb. And, and that's where these guys lived. Now, it, it's, it's kind of interesting to think about their placement. You've got this cemetery, and you've got the Sea of Galilee. And there's really only one flat spot in, around the Sea of Galilee, and it's right next to the water, just on the beach, just going around. That's where the road is now, and it must have been then as well if there was a road. And these guys, for years, living in the cemetery, would torment people as they would pass by. I can't imagine that. Can you, can you imagine walking by a cemetery and these two guys come rushing out of, a, out of the tombs to come and chase you around? That's terrifying. My first two years of seminary, before going up to Andrews University up in Michigan, I did what's called the in-ministry the, uh, in program. So I was pastoring, but then twice a year I would go for two-week stints to different union offices around the North American division, and I'd have two classes at a time and, and knock them out. And I loved it because I got to do seminary and I got to travel, and it was a blast. And one of those trips, we got to go to San Francisco. Now, I'd been to San Francisco before, but you want to see the sights when you're there. And so I, I saw the Golden Gate Bridge, and of course, I went down to Pier 39. Have you been there? You, a few of you get out of Florida. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> Patricia, you've been there. Pier 39 so much fun. That's right where the Ghirardelli place is and the good sourdough bread is. It's where all the seals climb up on that, that floating barge area. Or, 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 or. You have, if you don't know, then you don't know. They're so loud there. And as, as we were down there, my, my other pastor and I were, were taking classes together, and we get down there on the pier, and we're walking along the railing, uh, just kind of holding on and moving along. And all around there are homeless people that are asking for money. And they have their cardboard signs, just like you'll see them right down here by Walmart and Apopka, or go down uh, Bear Lake Road, and you get to 414. They're there. They live there. And uh, you'd see these signs, and they'd say, I need help, need, need money. But there was this one guy I remember vividly. He, he surprised me. 
Um, in, in fact, he wowed me with his, with his style. He had taken branches, leaves, and kind of made kind of a, 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 a brushy covering for himself, and he was right next to the railing. And so I'm walking along with the railing, and I see this bush, and I, I walk around it, and he says, boo, I need some money. <laughs> and it was so clever that I had to give him some money. I don't know what he used it for, but I didn't care because I had a good laugh at it. And as I was thinking about that illustration, it reminded me of something that I've seen on YouTube. I don't know if you guys ever get stuck in the wormhole of YouTube and you just go on and on and on. It's kind of like Instagram reels. Man, don't get me started on those because I'll be there for an hour just laughing away. This guy on YouTube, his name is Bushman. A few weeks ago we had Dude Perfect, now it's Bushman. Um, Bushman is a character. He is hilarious. The fact that he likes to prank people and joke around with people, it just, it, it thrills my heart. And, and when people are scared, sometimes it's funny. I know in every one of us, you're, you're kind of agreeing with me, even if you're not nodding your heads. Sometimes it's funny when people are scared. Bushman understands that. In fact, he has taken a full-on ghillie suit and he has, he has created this costume and it's a, a planter, like a, like a, what you would plant plants in, one of those whatever. What are they called, planters? Yeah, it's a planter. And he gets in it and he goes to very well-populated areas, shopping malls or, or where, where people are, and he hides there to scare people. And I think it's hilarious, and it does fit in with this story, and so I brought some video for you today. Is that okay if we watch it? Uh, okay, all right, here he is, let's see it. Here he is, you don't even know it's him, boom! <laughs> Oh, man. Here's another one. Oh. <laughs> this guy, this next guy, not expecting it at all. Oh, this guy. Oh, my. This last one is... Uh... <laughs> oh. The difference between Bushman and the demoniacs is that the Bushman is joking. He's having a good time. He's pulling a prank on someone. The demoniacs want to kill you. They're there to harm you. They're there to hurt you. They're there to inflict pain on you. They've been in chains because their symptoms are so serious that people try to hold them down. They've, they've chained them hands and feet and they've broken the chains, which emphasizes the point that this is a very serious situation. No human power can do anything in the battle between the superpowers of good and evil, of light and darkness, of Christ and Satan. Our, our feeble attempts to control the devil only end up in the tattered remains of broken handcuffs and splintered chains. We're no match for the devil. Verse six, the story continues, it says this, when he, that's the demoniac, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. And I pause there, Jesus and the disciples, they've beached their boat, They've gotten out of the boat. The sun may be coming up. They just experienced that storm on the lake and, and the sun's coming up, but it's still dark outside. And they look and they see two naked, crazy men barreling from the cemetery towards them. Oh, I can't imagine what this is like. Can you imagine them with me? I mean, they're probably making noises. 
Maybe it's not words. They might have this low guttural groan, or maybe it's a high-pitched squeal as they come clinking and clanging with the chain remains on their ankles and hands as they come rushing at Jesus and the disciples. I wonder what they looked like. If we'd been close enough to look them in the eyes, what would you have seen? I wonder if you would have just seen a blank, empty stare and wondered what's looking back out at you. Ellen White, she writes it like this way. She says, their eyes glared out from their long and matted hair. The very likeness of humanity seemed to have been blotted out by the demons that possessed them, and they looked more like wild beasts than like men. And as these completely possessed men come running toward Jesus, what do the disciples do? They do the same thing that you and I would do. They split the scene. They run for their life, sprinting down the beach, and as they're running away from these demons, they realize that they're missing someone, and it's Jesus. Because Jesus stands in the midst of the trial and the struggle and the discouragement and the pain, and he stands there because Jesus is a God of hope. He helps the helpless. Jesus, he stands in the face of the thing that binds you, the thing that controls you, the thing that grips you. It's the struggle that you have. It's the brokenness you face. It's the burden that you carry. And he stands there calm and peaceful to give you some sort of sense of peace that he's got it all under control. And he's there, not alarmed. He's always there ready to give comfort and care. And I don't know what you're facing this morning. The challenge that you have the burden that you carry, what you feel like controls you, relationship that hurts you, finances that keep you bound, whatever you face, Jesus stands in the midst of your trial. He faces it head on, and he simply says, peace, be still. A couple of years ago, I was, got a phone call from a friend in Gainesville, Georgia, from the SDA church there, and they, they called me and said, hey, Pastor Matt, our church has been doing some outreach downtown Atlanta, and we met somebody, her name's Ashley, and, and, and we need you to help her because you're the closest to her. And I said, oh, okay, I'm ready. And so they gave me an address. There was no phone number, it was just an address. And so I get in my truck and I drive downtown Atlanta. I stood out like a sore thumb, y'all pretty sketchy. I'm driving in there. It's just an address, and it's an address to a, a storage facility. You know these places that got garage doors, and you store all your junk in there that you'll never use, but you pay for it every month? I pull up into the parking lot, and I see this girl standing outside one of the garages, and I, I assume it's Ashley, and so I drive up, and I say, hey, are you Ashley? She says, yeah. Downtrodden face, she's discouraged. I said, "Hey, I'm I'm Pastor Matt. Let me let me take you where you need to go." And so she she gets in my truck, and it's it's awkward because we got a 30 minute drive, and so we got to have some sort of conversation. So she sits next to me, and and I just say, "Hey, tell me about your story. Tell me what's going on. Tell me tell me how I can help you." And she she says, "Well, well, my name's Ashley, and um, I'm homeless, and I have a bunch of family here in Atlanta, but none of them will help me, and." Um, I'm pregnant, five and a half months pregnant. She says, baby daddy's not in the picture anymore. I mean, I mean, he paid for a week at a hotel, but then we had a fight and, and he called the management and he tried to take the money back so I'd be back out on the street. She said, I've had a terrible life. She said, I, I grew up in a home and when I was 12, my dad started to rape me. 
She said, I, I am a drug addict and I have been off drugs for five days. And I thought, that's not very long. She continued to tell me her story and I, and I drove her to this place called Grace, Sheltering Grace Ministries. It's this ministry in Atlanta, it's not Adventist, but they take in homeless, pregnant women. They have a place only for 16 girls at a time. And they house them there, that you can't take a cell phone in there, you can't have any visitors, no men are allowed. It is just for these girls so that they can turn their life around and show them a picture of what is better. And part of the process of this is to have an interview. And so I drove her to Sheltering Grace Ministries and we walked inside and there was Dr. Carl. He was at the front desk and he welcomed us in and we walked to his office and I mean, I'm kind of the delivery guy. I'm just kind of the taxi driver, one place to another, yet somehow I'm wrapped up in this situation. And we go into his office, and he sits down, and we sit across from him uh, next to each other, and I'm just kind of a part of what's happening. And he begins to ask her questions, and he begins to tell her what Sheltering Grace does. And as I watch her, tears stream down my face as I listen to her and listen to him give her hope, and her, her countenance changes as she sees that there's something better, that there's hope for the hopeless, that there's help for the helpless. And as these demoniacs run up to Jesus, writhing and raging, but absolutely helpless because they're controlled by someone else, Jesus sees past the outward display, and he sees their true need for help. And so they begin to have a conversation. It's recorded here in Mark chapter 5. The conversation is scary to me because we know Jesus is speaking, but we don't know who's speaking back to Jesus. And here's how the conversation goes. Verse seven, he, the demoniac, or the demon inside him, shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want from me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And I paused there for a minute to think about this situation. I mean, Jesus is in a serious situation. He's not dealing with one demon. He's not deeming, dealing with one evil spirit. He's dealing with thousands of them. A Roman legion back in the day was 6,000 men and 700 horses. There are thousands of demons that are talking back to Jesus. And Jesus asks the name, and I wonder if Jesus asks the name, not because he cares about the name, but because he wanted you and me to know how serious of a situation this is, that he wanted to know how bad it was, and I think he wanted you to know that no matter how big your struggle is, that no matter how tough your situation is, Jesus is bigger and stronger and mightier than thousands of Satan's attempts to hold you down. And he has the power to free you from really big problems. I mean, isn't that what the gospel message says? The gospel message is the message of Jesus, one that loved you enough to become one of us, to show you what the Father looks like, a God that frees people from bondage, a God that gives victory over sin. It's the gospel message, and on that Friday evening when Jesus died, Satan dances around the tomb because he thinks he has victory. The whole universe pauses with bated breath to wonder if Jesus really is who he says he is, the champion of the universe. The, the entire universe waits to see if the plan of redemption is actually legit, but it's on that Sunday morning when Satan and his legions of evil angels try to hold the stone back that Jesus breaks forth and he says, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? 
He says, I am the resurrection and the, and the life, and you who believe in me will be set free. And Jesus, in the middle of this story, a God that gives grace, he even gives grace to demons. Here's what it says in verse 10. And he, that's the demons, the many of them, begged Jesus again and again to not send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs were, was feeding on the ne nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. And he gave them permission. And the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank and into the lake, and they were drowned. Now, here's the thing. The entire time that I was in Galilee, the entire way around the lake, I looked for the cliff. Because if you are a lifelong Adventist, then I bet you have read the blue Bible story books like I have. In fact, when I was a kid, my parents, would take, I would take my shower on Friday night, get all clean. They'd comb my hair over back when I had hair. I'd get my ears clean, and we'd sit on the, the, the sofa in the living room, and we would read those blue storybooks. And I remember this picture so vividly. It's the picture of a cliff, and the pigs are sprawling and flailing as they, they drop into the Sea of Galilee. Have you seen that picture? It's a cliff. It's a precipice. But I've been to Galilee, and there's no precipice. I looked all around. In fact, this is a picture of what it looks like. This is from the uh, kind of the south shore looking over to the eastern shore. And there's mountains there, but there's no precipice. There's no cliff there. And Jesus, who is a wholehearted Jew, but he's a better Adventist because he shows his distaste for bacon. And he sends the demons into the pigs, and they go squealing and squalling as they go barreling down this slope, down to the beach, and they can't stop, and they go barreling out into the sea, and they drown. And if you'd been standing there, what would it have sounded like? There's no more pigs. There's no more demons. It's just quiet. I'm going to fast forward to the part where the pig owners have a hard time because they're materialistic and, and greedy and selfish and they want Jesus to leave because they can't handle the fact that he's just ruined part of their livelihood. And we pick up the story as Jesus is getting ready to go back across the lake in verse 18. I think this is where a transition in the message today happens. Verse 18 says this. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been, past tense, demon-possessed, begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Jesus climbs into the boat, the disciples climb into the boat, and, they, and they, the demon-possessed, the former demon-possessed man comes to the boat, and he's got clothes on. So the Bible says they were clothed. How did they get their clothes? I think the disciples probably gave him a robe or something. And the, and the former demon-possessed man says, can I go with you, Jesus? 
and I wonder why. I think he probably feels like if he stays here by himself, the demons will come back. If he's not at the feet of Jesus, then the demons come back. And so he wants to stay with Jesus because it's a place of safety. And Jesus sees a bigger picture and a bigger realization of what a disciple and a follower of Jesus looks like. It's good to bask in what Jesus has done for you. But if you keep it to yourself, then you miss what a disciple actually is. And Jesus says, your calling is not to just bask in the wonder of who God is to you. Your calling is to tell somebody else about it. And he says, you go and tell others. Now, it's funny that he mentions the the cities of the Decapolis. And as I was brooding over this text and kind of looking for the details to make it come alive, I read about the Decapolis. Decca is 10, Polis is city, 10 cities. You can read about them. They're listed. And as I was reading through this list of cities, I saw one that I recognized. As I saw the pictures, I said, I've been there. In fact, one of those 10 cities is the city of Beit Shan. Here's a picture of some of the, there's the columns. It's, it's an unbelievable city. You can still see it today. I mean, that's, that's from how many years ago? Still standing. Uh, there's an amphitheater here. Here's a picture of it. Still, look at that. You could put four, five, six thousand 6,000 people in that amphitheater. Uh, here's another picture of just kind of the whole city. Still pillars everywhere. There's roads. There's uh, Pastor Tim and I were talking about this this morning. A place where they had hot saunas and the steam would come up from underneath. This ornately structured city. In fact, you can go to the top of this mound. Here's a picture. This is looking down on the city. But where I'm standing taking this picture, it's five layers of temples on top of each other all the way to the top. And they won't excavate it because to get to the next level, you have to destroy the one above it. Instead, they've shot x-rays in there and so they know what's in there. Five different levels of temples. That's five different cultures and societies and and, uh, worship that's happened there. This is the city where Saul and Jonathan's bodies were hung on the wall as, as the people shouted for victory. And Jesus says, go tell your stories. This city's kind of a, a fond city to me, just because I had some good experiences here. In fact, I brought one of those uh, pictures with me. It's the old bathhouse. On the left, there's Jonathan Montez. He's the youth director for Georgia Cumberland. There's Stinky Smith in the middle, and then there's Gary Rustad. He's the conference president for Georgia Cumberland. And we found ourselves in the bathroom at this place. And I'll tell you what, I've never appreciated modern toilet seats as much as I did as I was sitting on those things. Cold and hard, no fun. And Jesus says, go tell your story. Go to the Decapolis. Go to your family. Go everywhere you can and tell your story. And that's what they did. But here's how they did it. They didn't stand up in front of thousands of people and have a beautiful expository exegetical sermon with perfect hermeneutical principles. They didn't wear suits and ties. They didn't rent an an arena and bring people. They didn't have Charles Hogerbrooks and uh, Michael Harris come and sing, although that would have been a good idea. They told their story, their experience, and what Jesus had done for them. In fact, Ellen White, she writes in The Desire of Ages, she says this, she says, not one sermon from Jesus' lips had fallen upon their ears. They could not instruct the people as the disciples who'd been daily with Christ were able to do, but they bore in their own persons the evidence that Jesus was the Messiah. They could tell what they knew, what they themselves had seen and heard and felt of the power of Christ. And she says this to you and me, this is what everyone can do whose heart has been touched by the grace of God. 
And the Bible says that all the people were amazed. I'm challenged this morning as I think about my story and your story. And I doubt that everyone in here has a story as shocking as these demoniacs. Uh, That would be incredible stories. But it doesn't matter if your story is unbelievable or not. What's believable about your story is the person that's in your story, and that's Jesus. This morning, I'm wondering, who is the person in your life that you need to share that story with? Is it a neighbor? Is it a coworker? I mean, there's so many Adventists in this area. You might work for Fleece or FLA, or you might work for Advent Health, yet there's people that need to hear your story. Who needs to hear your story? On Thursday this last week, I got to have lunch with a man named Eddie. You may know him. You will know him for sure because he's going to be baptized here in the near future. Eddie's a great guy. He, uh, I've known him for quite a while. In fact, I met him in Marietta. He came to my church there and then he moved down here. And his story is fantastic. And as we sat there at Zaza's and we ate quesitos and guava pastries, y'all, I can't get enough of that place. As we sat there, he shared his story, and his story is a story of highs and lows and ups and downs. And he shared the story of divorce, of losing his son at the age of 15, of losing his job and being financially strapped. He shared of people that God put in his life to bring him to the place where he is now. But his story doesn't end with all the drama. His story culminates at the feet of Jesus as he's ready to take that step of walking with Jesus and living for him every step of the way. It's his story. This morning, I, I ask or I encourage, may we have the courage to tell our story. May we live the gospel in every moment of every day with everyone that we meet. God bless you.